For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yes, the deep ones are real. It would have been better YouTube practice to call this video, Are the Deep Ones Real? But that would have felt dishonest because it's not a bloody question. There definitely, absolutely are fish-human hybrids in a song of ice and fire. We've personally met several in the story already. The Maesters have documented at least two civilizations of fish people elsewhere in the world. And of course, George R.R. Martin's Planetos, if you will, or Girth, if you prefer, is in general populated by all manner of human-animal hybrids. Some of those hybrids are fish people. Call them deep ones, merlings, selkies, walrusmen, squishers. They're out there. They're still active and they have a plan. In other words, the question isn't do they exist, it's what are they up to? You could say that they've been influencing ironborn culture through the drowned priests for thousands of years, but it's actually more accurate to say that ironborn culture has only ever been little more than a cult of the Deep Ones. In ancient day, the cult of the Deep Ones actually spanned the length and breadth of Westeros. That's right, wherever the first men lived on peninsulas or islands, they seemed to have run afoul of squishers. And of course, the prime directive of Deep Ones cult is breeding with humans. That's how you join the cult, pretty much. Now, I'm having a little bit of fun here by calling it a cult, obviously, but the real serious truth here is that the ancient first men, and even sometimes children of the forest and green men, were in fact being farmed by the Deep Ones in specific places that I will show you today. This practice was not only widespread, but also codified into unholy ritual, which is where we get the cult and ironborn culture which are pretty much the same thing. That's, that's the point of the video. Anyway, today I'm going to show you that the Deep Ones are real, how they influence humans, and most importantly, how they already are and will continue to be involved in the story. This time there was no village close at hand when darkness came upon them, nor were there any trees to give them shelter. They were forced to camp amongst some rocks 50 yards above the tide line. The rocks at least would keep the wind off. Best we keep a watch tonight, my lady, Crab told her as she was struggling to get a driftwood fire lit. A place like this, there might be squishers. Squishers? Brienne gave him a suspicious look. Monsters, Nimble Dick said with relish. They look like men till you get close, but their heads is too big, and they got scales where a proper man's got hair. Fish belly white they are, with webs between their fingers. They're always damp and fishy smelling, but behind these blubbery lips they got rows of green teeth, sharp as needles. Some say the first men killed them all, but don't you believe it? They come by night and steal bad little children, padding along on them webbed feet with a little squish squish sound. The girls they keep to breed with, but the boys they eat, tearing at them with those sharp green teeth. He grinned at Podrick. They'd eat you, boy. They'd eat you raw. If they try, I'll kill them. Podrick touched his sword. You try that. You just try. Squishers don't die easy. He winked at Brienne. You a bad little girl, milady?
There is no spoon. There is no Here we spoon. Go. Have you seen my magic spoon? There is spoon no spoon anywhere. Oh, there is no spoon, Dave. It's all in your mind. No, Rhaegar, the Matrix isn't real. But that spoon is, and I need it to eat some of the sweet, tasty magic spoon cereal. Yes, Dave, of course I know that. Don't be silly. This is actually a Valerian steel spoon. Notice the layers of folded steel. Rhaegar, you're blinded by your love of nostalgia. Be it for old Valeria or the Matrix. Don't forget Mario Kart. But Magic Spoon cereal is the childhood nostalgia that you can enjoy any time of the day because it's delicious and fueling. Of course it is, Dave. That's because it has 13 to 14 grams of protein per serving. And there's no energy crash afterwards such as you would have with a high sugar snack. Sweet. So, can I add my spoon back? What I want to know is how they've rediscovered the secret of Valerian steel. They didn't. They discovered the secret of making... Cereal with grown-up ingredients, and I'd really like to eat some now. Folks, click the link below to get some Magic Spoon cereal today. You can build your very own custom box with all the flavors you love, and use our code LIGHTBRINGER for $5 off. You can choose from the best-selling cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and maple waffle flavors, plus other awesome flavors including honey nut, blueberry muffin, birthday cake, cinnamon roll, and chocolate chip cookie. You can also add their marshmallow and chocolatey peanut butter cereal treats to your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, I can't see why you wouldn't, but they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So start the year off right by clicking the link below, or scan the QR code on the screen and use the promo code LIGHTBRINGER for $5 off, or go to magicspoon slash LIGHTBRINGER. And for our Canadian and British fans, Magic Spoon also ships to Canada and the UK. I wonder if they ship to Old Valeria. I really was excited when they sent me the spoon. I have to say, I was unreasonably excited. Any case, hi. Thanks for watching the whole ad. I'm David Lightbringer. It means a lot. And thank you so much for helping me get over 100,000K. I'm sure the plaque is in the mail already. So yes, the deep ones... Thanks for clicking on this video in which I will lay out for you the long-standing traditions of these squishers, merlings, deep ones, etc. Which is, of course, to say their tradition of stealing, enslaving, impregnating, and yes, farming of humans. That's right, the ironborn may not like farming, but they themselves may be a crop of half-breeds from one of the Deep One's many successful attempts to farm humans. Said another way, I believe that many or even most of the first Ironborn were the half-breed slaves of the actual Deep Ones. That's the deal, folks. In fact, there's really only one way to become a fish human in A Song of Ice and Fire, and that's for one of your parents to have been mated with against their will, if you will. We're not going to say the R word here and get the video demonetized, but yeah, euphemisms may fool the YouTube censors, but they don't make the truth of the Deep Ones any less horrific. Let's start with the basics, because I still do get people commenting and making YouTube videos that all this squisher stuff seems kind of wacky, and that they don't believe that they're real. But as I mentioned at the beginning, the maesters, who are very sober and function as the scientists, anthropologists, and historians of their day, have documented two different civilizations of fishy-looking humanoids one on Toad Island in the Basilisk Isles, and one on the Thousand Islands in the eastern part of the Shivering Sea, north of Mosavi. I'm saving the passage about the Thousand Islands for a little bit later in the video, but here is the maesterly report on the Isle of Toads and the fishy-looking people that live there. 
On the Isle of Toads can be found an ancient idol, a greasy black stone crudely carved into a semblance of a gigantic toad of malignant aspect, some 40 feet high. The people of this isle are believed by some to be descended from those who carved the toad stone, for there is an unpleasant fish-like aspect to their faces, and many have webbed hands and feet. If so, they are the sole surviving remnant of this forgotten race. Like I said, they are far from the sole surviving remnant of this forgotten race, but maybe in that particular part of the world they are. And in fact, the Maesters also attribute ruins found upon the Isle of Tears, the Isle of Toads, and Axe Island to these fishy-looking toad idol worshippers as well, and call their civilization a Dawn Age one, which was ended by the arrival of the first Corsairs to the Basilisk Isles. So wait. A group of islands full of fishy people who worship an oily black stone, which were later taken over by pirates? Man, that sounds a lot like the Iron Islands, like exactly like the Iron Islands history, since I do believe that is the basic timeline. The first men here seem to have been hybridizing, if you will, with the Deep Ones long before the Grey King and his ancient mariners from across the sea ever arrived. Now, I do tend to think that George created this parallelism intentionally to help us piece together the Secret Prehistory of the Ironborn series title call it. And we'll actually find a similar history over on the Three Sisters Islands in Westeros, which was similarly overrun by pirates long ago, but which retain a local population of very fishy people with fishy beliefs and practices. Setting aside pirates for the moment, Arr, no one sets me aside. The connection between fish people and Orly Blackstone is definitely where this all starts. The Maesters are generally skeptical and not prone to exaggeration, and they say this is a race of people with fishy-looking faces and webbed hands and feet. And their culture seems to revolve around this huge, oily Blackstone toad idol. This thing really does seem like it could almost be a companion piece to the oily Blackstone Kraken Throne, known as the Sea Stone Chair. Although really the Kraken should be bigger than the Toads, since the Toads are small. It, I guess it doesn't really matter. These are just likenesses of Lovecraftian gods anyway. So, I mean, I guess size is immaterial, right? They absolutely do seem like companion pieces, and shouldn't be surprised if they share a common Deep One origin. And like the Toad Island people, the Ironborn definitely seem to have both cultural practices based on contact with the Deep Ones and people alive today who still bear the physical hallmarks of Deep One hybridization. We dealt with the longer Dagon Cod at Moat Kalen scene in the Moat Kalen Disaster Hunters video, but here are the highlights. He's described as a big man, but pop-eyed and wide of mouth with dead white flesh. He looked as if his father had sired him on a fish, but still he wore a long sword. Dagon, of course, threatens Theon with a very squisher-like torment, saying, I'll open your belly, pull your entrails out, and make you eat them. But then dies by axe to the forehead, which is a fatal condition. And the line there is, he jerked like a fish on a hook, then crashed face first onto the table. And of course, the table in that scene is an oily black stone feast table, so very sacrificial vibes going on. Dagon Cod himself is named after a fish, the codfish, and a Lovecraftian god, Dagon, which in turn took its name from a misunderstanding concerning a Sumerian fish-headed god, Oans, 
and a rain and fertility god called Dagon. In other words, George is telling us, in no uncertain terms, that some of the Ironborn are fishy people, and that this fishiness has its origins in the Deep Ones, who worship Dagon and sometimes eat people. As I mentioned in the Mote Kalen video, I'm pretty sure that George placed this Dagon cod scene at Mote Kalen because it was the Squishers and their hybrid thralls who originally built Mount Kalen, which is, of course, constructed entirely out of huge blocks of black basalt that might be upgraded to probably are also oily blackstone. So before we go any further, we can already say this for sure. Fish people do exist in a song of ice and fire. Just as the children of the forest are therianthropic humanoids with the physical features of cats, snakes, and deer, and just as the Valerians and Targaryens show evidence of possessing hybridized reptilian DNA every time they give birth to a deformed lizard baby, which are known to have physical features such as scales, wings, tails, and claws. Those are animal features, not human features, by the way. We hear tell of all manner of weird humanoids in Sothorios and the further east, some of which is likely based in truth. And then we have the very real giants that Jon Snow and the Night's Watch meet north of the Wall, and also the knee-high dwarf that Danny meets in Karth at the House of the Undying. Don't forget the knee-high dwarf. That's very weird. In other words, I think it's safe to say that A Song of Ice and Fire is, wait for it, a fantasy story with pretend evolution and expanded crossbreeding possibilities. Some of those possibilities are realized by the Deep Ones, as these abandoned island cultures of hybrid populations show. It's also interesting to note the extreme distance between the Basilisk Isles, the Iron Isles, and the Thousand Islands. We have no idea if these are the same sort of Deep Ones or Merlings or whatever in all of these locations, or if Deep Ones and Selkies and Merlings, etc. are even different things at all. But what we can say is that humans were aquatically hybridized on the shores of both the Shivering Sea and the Summer Sea, and as I mentioned, all over the coasts, islands, and peninsulas of Westeros. And I do mean all over Westeros, and significantly on both the east and west coast. Davos's visit to the Three Sisters Islands is undeniable evidence, so let's go ahead and quote that scene. The Lord fingered the ribbon, frowning at the seals. He was an ugly man, big and fleshy, with an oarsman's thick shoulders and no neck. Coarse gray stubble, going white in patches, covered his cheeks and chin. Above a massive shelf of brow, he was bald. His nose was lumpy and red, with broken veins, his lips thick, and he had a sort of webbing between the three middle fingers of his right hand. Davos had heard that some of the lords of the Three Sisters had webbed hands and feet, but he had always put that down as just another sailor's story. The woman brought them a fresh loaf of bread, still hot from the oven. When Davos saw her hand, he stared. Lord Godric did not fail to make note of it. Aye, she has the mark, like all Borels for five thousand years. My daughter's daughter, not the one who makes the stew. He tore the bread apart and offered half to Davos. Eat, it's good. It's pretty funny that Lord Borel is frowning at the seals here, since his ancestors very definitely did not frown at the seals, if you, if you take my meaning. Both Godric and his granddaughter have webbing between their fingers, very like the people of Toad Island. And please don't try to convince yourself that this is just some weird skin deformity and not evidence of Deep One hybridization, because you'd be wrong. 
Lord Borel, like Dagon Cod, has what's known as the Innsmouth look, which is something that Martin would be borrowing from H.P. Lovecraft which is where he got the squishers. In the book Shadow Over Innsmouth, those whose ancestors bred with the squishers have this sort of look. Little hair, thick and stocky, sort of brutish looking, almost dead looking flesh, wide mouth, big blubbery lips, and so on. The Manderleys all have this look as well. The huge, almost comedically food-stained Lord Wyman Manderley looks to Davos like half a corpse whose skin is pallid with an undertone of gray. His sons both take after him and even have fishy-looking walrus mustaches. Both had ostentatious walrus mustaches and heads as bare as a baby's bottom. Neither seemed to own a single garment that was not spotted with food stains. Squishers eat messy, I hope I don't have to tell you that. But I do want to tell you that the fray pie scene definitely hits differently when you realize that Wyman Manderley is a deep one spawn gluttonously devouring people in front of everyone and reveling in every moment. The best pie you have ever tasted, my lords, the fat lord declared. Wash it down with arbor gold and savor every bite. I know I shall. True to his word, Manderley devoured six portions, two from each of the three pies, smacking his lips and slapping his belly and stuffing himself until the front of his tunic was half brown with gravy stains and his beard was flecked with crumbs of crust. Absolutely disgusting. It's going to get worse as we go. I'm really just trying to break it off for you in bite-sized chunks. <laughs> so as you're starting to see, there has been actual fish hybridization in Westeros, and the genetic presence is still strong enough to manifest. We don't know how often that squisher blood needs to be renewed to keep the traits alive for thousands of years, but it seems to run quite strongly amongst the Borels, and perhaps a little less strongly amongst the Mandalees, who, after all, did come to this area more recently. That actually tells us something else, though. Deep One hybridization has continued into more recent times. Recent enough to have ensnared the Manderleys after they came to White Harbor. Interesting to note, George Martin actually drops a reminder about the Sisterman having webbed toes and fingers in Sansa's Wind's early release chapter. So don't think that Davos Lord Borel scene is just written for effect. That's world building right there. Now, just as on the Iron Islands, there appear to be cultural norms that celebrate Deep One hybridization at both White Harbor and the Three Sisters Islands. Among the Borels, it's considered an honor to have the mark and not a reason to make someone outcast. This belief that Deep One hybrids are holy or special or qualified to be the lords of an island must surely date back to the time when the Deep One's cult was alive and well here. We know that the people of Sisterton used to worship a pair of oceanic deities the Lady of the Waves, and the Lord of the Skies. With the violent storms that occur around the Three Sisters Islands being seen as the product of their divine coupling, it would seem to be a gender-swapped version of the Stormlands mythology, which talks about a sea god and a goddess of the wind whose divine child is Fair Elenai. And it also reminds us of the brotastic boys-only ironborn deity pairing of the drowned god and the storm god. Perhaps most interestingly, the ancient people of Sisterton, apparently, had a custom of casting children born with dwarfism into the sea. And I'd suspect that this ritual wasn't confined to children with dwarfism or other birth conditions, but was simply a part of their sacrifices to the sea gods, who, of course, would be the deep ones. I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that these people would be 
totally freaked out by dwarfism to the point of throwing their children into the sea, but on the other hand, choose the most webby-handed Innsmouth-looking bros to be the lords of their islands. This is all probably part of the same set of cultural practices, since we know that child sacrifice is a big part of Deep One behavior. I mean, it's on the bloody t-shirt. I got this at Hot Topic, guys. Even they know the truth. Now, White Harbor definitely seems to be a place where fishy mythology centered around the Merlin King has taken very ancient and strong root. And that culture still dominates the city, even though the Mandalays brought the worship of the Faith of the Seven there some thousand years ago or so. And even though the North is generally the domain of the worshippers of the old gods of the Weirwoods, with White Harbor's older castle even containing an enormous and ancient Weirwood. This Merlin King merman symbolism and iconography has come to completely dominate White Harbor and House Manderley with their merman's court that places everyone in a watery audience hall beneath the waves. As far as symbolism goes, it's not very subtle. It's the drowned god's watery halls, everyone. There it is. In other words, the Deep One-inspired culture at White Harbor was so strong that it totally subsumed every other cultural idea the Mandalays brought with them and could never be erased by northern old gods worship, which has been going strong for 8,000 years or so. This is why I spoke of an ancient cult or culture. We aren't simply dealing with some weird phenomenon where people wandering too close to the shoreline occasionally get abducted or eaten by the squishers, but rather a prolonged interaction between the Deep Ones and humans around which culture and religion have arisen. In fact, as it turns out, there are fish humans in many or even most of the ancient legends of Westeros and nearby Essos. We've just been talking in our recent Ironborn videos about how the Grey King, cultural hero of the Ironborn, married a mermaid and had a hundred sons with her who became most of the Ironborn nation. We've also been comparing Grey King to Durin Godsgrief, the founding cultural hero of the Stormlands, because King Durin married the daughter of the wind and sea gods, Elenai, and then had many descendants that populated that region. A magical woman that comes from the sea could be, or I'd say probably is, some kind of fish human, and much of the rest of Durin's story seems like a very close match to that of the Grey King, who again, also married a fish human hybrid person, also founded a nation, and who also warred against the gods and called down some unbelievable storm that stands in the historical record 8,000 years later. Then we have Owen Oakenshield, son of Garth the Green, founding Hero of the Reach, who, quote, conquered the Shield Islands, driving the Selkies and Merlings back into the sea. Garth the Green, of course, is described as a green man and is thought to either have led the first first men into Westeros or perhaps to have been in Westeros before any humans. And here we find his son taking over islands which were already populated with fish humanoids. Here we see Selkies and Merlings lumped together as if they were the same thing, and again, I will say that nobody can really know how many different species of fish people there are, and that it's not really anything to worry about. I mean, squishers are something to worry about if you're near the shoreline, but it doesn't really matter if the deep one eating you alive calls themselves a merling or a selkie, now does it? And of course, in terms of real-world folklore, there are different legends associated with some of these different types of fish humans. And George is, in fact, drawing from many or most of them at different times. In any case, yes, the Deep Ones appear to be one of the old races that the children of the forest speak of having inhabited Westeros before humans, along with the children themselves, the giants, and probably the green men. 
Grey King, Durin God's Grief, and Garth Green are the oldest personages in their respective cultures, and they are all interacting with fish people who appear to have already been in Westeros when they got there. Now over in the Vale, the oldest mythical figure that anyone talks about is the Winged Knight, Sweet Robin's favorite. And the Winged Knight supposedly, quote, rode upon a huge falcon with an army of eagles fighting at his command when he, quote, flew to the top of the giant's lance and slew the Griffin King to win the Vale. It also says that he counted giants and merlings amongst his friends and wed a woman of the children of the forest, though she died giving birth to his son. So pretty much everything about this story smacks of Dawn Age Westeros, right? The Griffin King and the Winged Knight are no doubt ancient skin changer warlords, such as once existed all over Westeros, who wore the skins of eagles, falcons, ravens, and other birds. So think Varamyr Sixskins, but just a lot more competent and a lot more focused on birds. The Winged Knight must have been a champion or conqueror of these bird skin changers, one who took over the area. And of course, today in those same mountains, we find descendants of the ancient first men. Wedding a child of the forest is certainly something the ancient first men seem to have done. And of course, we do know that giants once did live in southern Westeros and that you can indeed make friends with giants as Tormund and Mance and other wildlings have. Now, friends with Merlings, that's another story. No one really counts Merlings as their friends unless they're part of Deep One's cult. So you have to wonder what this winged knight fellow was really up to. I kid, of course, but the point is, this is yet another first man founding hero interacting with Merlings and Squishers and such. And that makes four so far, plus the Borel's claim of having had the mark for 5,000 years, and however old the Merlin King culture is at White Harbor and other places on the eastern seaboard. Now, you probably never thought much of the Merlin or mermaid parts of these ancient legends because there's just so much going on in them. And because it's so easy to dismiss talk of mermaids and squishers as snarks and grumpkins foolishness. That just highlights the joke Martin has played on us. And by us, I mean you, because I believe in the squishers. We laugh at the skeptical people in the story who don't believe in tales of the whites and the others and the children of the forest, dismissing them as talk of snarks and grumpkins. But Martin has fooled most of us into dismissing talk of the squishers as snarks and grumpkins when they're as real as the others, let me tell you. So once you realize that fish people do exist, then... All these old legends of mermaids and merlings and selkies have to be viewed as potentially having a foundation in truth. It might be hard to say which elements of any given myth are rooted in reality and what is poetic or symbolic or just exaggerated over time, but the simple fact that there are fish humans in so many of the oldest stories in Westeros does say, in general, that the first men did encounter merlings and deep ones or whatever as they spread throughout Westeros. Ergo, when Nimble Dick tells Brienne that some say the first men killed them all, but don't you believe it? He's right on three counts. One, the Squishers were here first. Two, the first men conflicted with them as they migrated up the continent. And three, they did not succeed in killing them all. Speaking of Nimble Dick, I will tell you that the oldest and greatest legendary figure on Cracklaw Point is, of course, the great Sir Clarence Crab. And according to Old Dick, Clarence Crab fought the Merlin King. There's no kind of dating for any of that story, but again, it does sound like a story set in very ancient Westeros. Clarence Crab is eight feet tall, 
rides a Norix, and his castle, now a ruin at the end of the Crackclaw Peninsula, was called the Whispers, and we know that it has both a weirwood organism and a cave system below. Clarence was said to have had a habit of bringing the heads of his defeated foes back to that cave so his woods witch wife could kiss them alive again to whisper good counsel to Clarence. Which, by the way, is a clear allusion to the Welsh myth of Bran the Blessed. So, was Clarence Crab some kind of skin changer or green seer first man? Or perhaps a towering green man figure like Durin Godsgrief? It's hard to say, of course, but it's probably something like that. And what we can say for sure is that we have yet another ancient founding cultural hero myth with deep ones in it. And Cracklaw in general does seem to be a place where everyone believes in the existence of the Deep Ones, as Nibbledick has told us. Now over on the other side of the Narrow Sea, we find one more very old legend that involves fish people, which would be the story of the destruction of the original inhabitants of Lorath. Those inhabitants were a very mysterious people called the Maze Makers, who carved elaborate mazes out of stone all over the headland and the main Lorathi island. Lorathi legends suggest that they were destroyed by an enemy from the sea. Merlings in some versions of the tale, Selkies and Walrus Men in others. Once again, we face the question of what's the difference between a Merling and a Selkie and a Walrus Man? But the point is, the Maze Maker civilization is of very great antiquity. And although there seem to be multiple versions of the legend of its destruction, all of them involve fish people. And let me tell you, the idea of Merlings coming out of the sea to kill and destroy is a lot more accurate than any of those lovely tales of bewitching mermaids. Yeah. And there are, by the way, said to be mermaids in the Shivering Sea on whose shores Lorath sits. And supposedly they have black-scaled tails and are more malign than the less chilly mermaids of the South. But again, I would advise steering clear altogether unless you want your descendants to be pop-eyed and wide of mouth. <laughs> what a sentence. <laughs> All right, my back got it together now. Um, Let me also make the point that... Uh, even if the destroyers of Lorath weren't Deep Ones and Selkies, you know, but rather just an enemy from the sea. Classic pirates, as some have suggested. The fact that all the legends say the Squishers did it just indicates a general belief in the existence of Marlings and Squishers in that area. And thus I believe I've made my point. The ancient legends of Westeros frequently mention mermaids, Merlings, Selkies, and the like. And the Narrow Sea in particular seems to be teeming with Merlings of every sort. The West Coast ain't taking no smack talk, though, with Said, uh, about its lack of deep ones. I already mentioned the Shield Islands and all the Merlings and Selkies Garth's son Owen Oakenshield had to drive off. Or chose to drive off anyway. I guess he could have just joined Deep One's cult. I already mentioned the mermaid that the Grey King married and then sired all of the Ironborn nation with, except for House Goodbrother. And of course, the Iron Islands and all of their Deep One lore is the main topic of this video. Aside from that, Tyrion Lannister also mentions that the fisherfolk of Lannisport often report sightings of Merlings. And even though he's being sarcastic, we can assume that there are probably local legends of mermaids and Merlings there, as there seem to be most everywhere along the coastline. Old Town, well... Old Town has a lot going on, and will get its own video in this series very soon. But there are both legends of Merlings there, as well as genuine questions posed by the maesters about who might have carved the winding tunnels in the fused stone fortress beneath the high tower, with its black stone reminding Archmaester Theron, who was born on the Iron Islands, of the sea stone chair. 
My guess on that, by the way, is that long before the Great Empire of the Dawn ever came there to shape the Black Stone with Dragonfire into the fused stone fortress that we see now, it must have been some other kind of hunk of oily Black Stone, and it probably was the Deep Ones who carved those tunnels down into the rock first. That's just a hunch. I'll have to follow up on that in a future video again, but uh, Sam actually hears one of the captains of the Hightower fleet casually discussing some of the options that Lord Leighton Hightower might be considering deploying against Euron in the coming battle. And curiously, he says this. Lord Leighton's locked atop his tower with the Mad Maid, consulting books of spells. Might be he'll raise an army from the deeps, or not. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe not, who knows? Could go either way. And again, I will simply say that this reflects a local folkloric belief that sometimes armies can come from the deeps. Put a pin in that for later, because Euron and the damp hair and thus the drowned gods are all sort of lurking around Old Town as of the winds of winter. The Ironborn, of course, have the strongest and clearest belief in a Deep One origin. As the drowned priest Sauron Saltung says, we did not come to these holy islands from godless lands across the seas. We came from beneath those seas, from the watery halls of the drowned god, who made us in his likeness, and gave to us dominion over all the waters of the earth. As I've said many times in this Ironborn video series, it just keeps going on and on forever, um, it, all these things appear to be true. I believe the actual timeline is first men interbreeding with the Deep Ones, creating a hybrid population, and then later, ancient mariners from across the Sunset Sea arriving, giving rise to the Grey King legends, and eventually merging with these fishy locals to create the Ironborn Nation. The mermaid that the Grey King married, well, I'm pretty sure that would have been a fish-human hybrid of this native population. A fishy first-man hybrid princess for Grey King to marry in order to bind his culture to the native one. It says that Grey King married her so that, quote, his sons and daughters might live above the waves or beneath them as they chose. And that's basically a perfect description of the hybridization process and the results. Dagon Cod and his ilk give testament to this fishy Deep One's ironborn ancestry, and one assumes he's not the only one whose father sired him on a fish. There's also a Lord Meldred Merlin, Lord of House Merlin of Pebbleton on Great Wick, and he seems to have the Innsmouth look. And what's great is that everyone calls him the Merlin, as per the naming tradition of the Lords of the Iron Islands, leading to such delightful sentences as, The Merlin was a bald, round, fleshy man who styled himself Lord in the manner of the Greenlands, and dressed in furs and velvets. So, in other words... Merling hybrids are bald, round, fleshy men who wear clothes like the people of the Greenlands and call themselves lords. Hardy har har. That's the story, though, and Aaron even does a mini drowning ritual and then sends Lord Merlin back up to his tower as if he were the first Merling to emerge from the drowned god's watery halls to become an ironborn lord in a tower. Now, for the rest of the squishy story, let's turn back to Nimbledick's squisher monologues and analyze them for the detail of what he actually told us about the Deep Ones and what they like to do. So yes, Nimble Dick definitely gave us the most detailed information about the Deep Ones. Uh, by the way, that comes from a Brienne passage of A Feast for Crows, and that's the one we read at the beginning. You can see the bullet points on the screen here, and essentially what he told us is that the belief about the Squishers is that they're child kidnappers and flesh eaters 
with an apparent agenda that involves creating half-breed squisher humans. They're monsters, as Dick said. And if he's right about the Deep Ones only being able to breed with human women, then it may be that the original hybrid populations are created from a human female and a squisher male, with the slightly more human descendants then free to spread their Deep One genes throughout the rest of the population. The main thing I want to point out about their physical description is that they're not quite as fishy as some of the glorious Deep Ones artwork that we've been showing throughout this video. They actually look like men until you get close, which you don't want to do, of course, goes without saying. Now, perhaps this description applies only to the hybrids and there are fishier Deep Ones down in the ocean. But the main point is that these fishy hybrids can kinda sorta blend into the human population and wear titles like Lord Manderley, Lord Burrell, or the Merlin. When you get close, however, expect to find an inhuman monster with pointed teeth, dead white flesh, and a desire to eat you raw. Brienne was warned about all this by Nimble Dick, but it didn't do her a lot of good when she met a Deep One hybrid spawn in real life. Later, in that same book, they're very hard to kill, as Nimble Dick said. No was all she had time to say before he fell on top of her, his weight driving her deeper into the mud. One of his hands was in her hair, pulling her head back. The other groped for her throat. Oathkeeper was gone, torn from her grasp. She had only her hands to fight him off. But when she slammed a fist into his face, it was like punching a ball of wet white dough. He hissed at her. She hit him again, again, again smashing the heel of her hand into his eye. But he did not seem to feel her blows. She clawed at his wrists, but his grip just grew tighter. The blood ran from the gouges where she scratched him. He was crushing her, smothering her. She pushed at his shoulders to get him off her, but he was heavy as a horse, impossible to move. When she tried to knee him in the groin, all she did was drive her knee into his belly. Grunting, Biter tore out a handful of her hair. So now, just try to remember how big and strong Brienne of Tarth really is. Jamie, if I recall correctly, compares her to the Hound. And yet, she has just no chance against Biter, whose squishy, doe-like face seems impervious to her many blows. A Brienne of Tarth palm jam to the eye socket really should do some damage, but not to this monster who wears the name Biter. Brienne also slashes his belly open with her dagger, and that pretty much just makes him angry. And then, after another hiss, Biter begins breaking bones with single blows, one to Brienne's face, and then one to break Brienne's arm. Then the true horror begins. Brienne's chest was burning, and the storm was behind her eyes, blinding her. Bones ground against each other inside of her. Biter's mouth gaped open, impossibly wide. She saw his teeth, yellow and crooked, filed into points. When they closed on the soft meat of her cheek, she hardly felt it. She could feel herself spiraling down into the dark. I cannot die yet, she told herself. There is something I still need to do. Biter's mouth tore free, full of blood and flesh. He spat, grinned, and sank his pointed teeth into her flesh again. This time, he chewed and swallowed. He is eating me, she realized, but she had no strength left to fight him any longer. So yes, this is horrible. Sorry for reading it. And uh, yes, Brienne is being eaten alive by a marling in this scene. Biter was supposedly found as an orphan by Rorge and raised to fight in the illegal fighting pits in King's Landing. And everyone thinks his teeth are filed, 
as opposed to being the naturally pointed teeth of a squisher or a squisher hybrid, but this may not be the case. That's really just what people would assume. Notice that his mouth opens impossibly wide. That's a damn squisher mouth. Likewise, the wiki says that Biter's tongue has been cut and that he therefore does not speak, but you need at least some tongue to hiss. Hiss. So Biter probably could speak, if not well, if he wanted to, but he doesn't. And that may be because he doesn't know how to speak. And that would make him a close match to the fishy people of the Thousand Islands who have pointed teeth but no language. So this is perhaps the crown jewel, or one of them, in the case for the Deep Ones having had a long-running breeding program with humans. And it's found in a remote place in the Shivering Sea, just off the northern shore of far eastern Essos. They're called the Thousand Islands, and well, just, just listen to this. Still farther east lie the so-called Thousand Islands. Ibides chart makers tell us that there are in truth fewer than 300. A seagirt scatter of bleak, windswept rocks believed by some to be the last remnants of a drowned kingdom, whose towns and towers were submerged beneath the rising seas many thousands of years ago. Only the boldest or the most desperate mariners ever make landfall here, for the people of these islands, though few in number, are a queer folk, a hairless people with green-tinged skin who file the teeth of their females into sharp points and slice the foreskins from the members of their males. They speak no known tongue and are said to sacrifice sailors to their squanimous, fish-headed gods, likenesses of whom rise from their stony shores, visible only when the tide recedes. Though surrounded by water on all sides, these islanders fear the sea so much that they will not set foot in the water, even under threat of death. Even Corlys Velaryon dared to sail no farther east than the Thousand Islands. This was where the sea snake turned back on his great northern voyage. So it's pretty easy to see what happened here, right? Now, in general, it does seem like sea levels have been rising since the Long Night, aka the last ice age, which is probably just Martin mimicking the recent climate timeline of Earth. So it's well possible that there was an ancient kingdom on these islands thousands of years ago, which has been gradually submerged. The squanimous fish-headed idols are submerged beneath the waves most of the time, so perhaps a little further outshore there are walls and cities and temples and streets and that sort of thing. What we can say for a certainty is that there is a race of people here who have remained in isolation from the rest of the human population of the world for a very long time. And these people have obviously been farmed by the Deep Ones. The maesters say that the females file their teeth into points, but that could be an assumption. These people don't have language that anyone can recognize, so I'm guessing they haven't been interviewed by the fledgling cultural anthropologists at the Citadel. Perhaps there's a sexual dimorphism that has manifested over time, where only the women have the big, sharp, pointy, nasty teeth of the squishers. Yeah, you know I had to get that in there. Or perhaps the teeth are filed intentionally, and this might be done to make these women more attractive brides for the squishers, whether they realize that's what they're doing or not. The fact that these people are terrified unto death of the water, where their fish-headed gods live, kind of seals the deal, if you will. Clearly, these fishy folk have seen some of their women and children abducted, and they've some of them have probably been eaten by the squishers, and perhaps their traditions even dictate that they leave women and children on the shoreline as sacrifices for the Deep Ones at certain times. One way or the other, they're keenly aware of the danger that comes from the sea, so they have some sort of relationship with the Deep Ones where they worship them, but out of abject terror. 
And that's really how all of this works. I mean, the Ironborn may have sort of turned things around and now celebrate their Deep One Fathers, as they say, dressing up in squid and fish armor and all the rest. But we're starting to see how this relationship really functions. When the rubber meets the road, or when the, when the shoreline meets the water, the squishers steal women and children to breed with, and they eat people. So now when we think of the ancient Iron Islands, where the first first men found that oily black stone squid idol on the shores of Old Wick. Well, it's probably much the same as what we see on the Thousand Islands. Perhaps there are more carved stones offshore of places like Old Wick or Pike. I mean, the Ironborn do very prominently believe in the existence of watery halls beneath the sea where they go to meet their drowned gods at the end of their lives. And even the Tullys, who are an ancient first man house, believe that they too send their dead to watery halls with their sort of Viking-like boat-burning funerals. One wonders, what's with this belief in cities under the water? I mean, in the real world, we'd simply assume that such sunken cities were built when sea levels were lower. But in this fantasy world where the Deep Ones are real, video title callout, and where we find these beliefs in submerged cities in places where people also believe in the Deep Ones, well, we could be talking about the Deep Ones literally building underwater cities just offshore of the places where they want to farm people. So this was already an idea that I was developing while working on this draft, that all these beliefs in submerged cities and watery halls actually refer to real Deep One cities when I consulted with my friend Grey Waste Tim of the Grey Waste Tim YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe. And he kindly informed me that, yes, in Shadow Over Innsmouth and other Lovecraftian stories, the Deep Ones do, in fact, build underwater cities just offshore of the places where they want to farm humans. And when the hybrids are reaching the end of their life cycles, they become progressively more fishy and eventually swim down to these watery halls to meet their Deep One fathers Stop me if any of this sounds familiar. I'll lower my tone of voice, but it's probably no coincidence that many or even most of these cultures that seem to have been contacted and hybridized by the Deep Ones believe in, or we might say know about, the existence of watery halls beneath the sea. And no coincidence that several of them believe that they will go down to these watery halls at the end of their lives. Ergo, it becomes very easy to picture the sea stone chairs having been dragged ashore by the Deep Ones for these ancient ironborn to use. I would guess that the Deep One abduction of children and women probably wasn't haphazard, but rather codified into unholy ritual, where, again, the women and children are given as sacrifices to the fish gods. Now, if the sea stone chair already had its seat carved into it at this time when they found it on the shores of Old Wick, well, then I'd guess that that seat is probably more like an altar where they place the sacrifices for the Deep Ones to come and collect. This feels right and also very wrong. All of this would, of course, mimic Craster's relationship with the others, and that's no accident either. It's an intentional parallel that Martin has created, and it helps to illustrate my point about farming humans. The others leave Craster and his family alive, and in return, he worships them and gives them his male children by leaving them out in the woods, as opposed to out on the shoreline. We know that those children play some role in either creating new others or... I would say maintaining the existence of the current others. So yes, the others are farming Craster and his children, and he in turn worships them. So, who were the ancient ironborn? Well, at some point, I think many or most of them were the breeding slaves of the Deep Ones. That could be why thraldom became so ingrained in ironborn culture when it 
died out almost everywhere else in Westeros because the Ironborn began as thralls of the Deep Ones. What's great is that the Ironborn are essentially recreating the entire thing by dressing up as squids and fish people, coming ashore in the night, surprise attacking the Greenlanders, and stealing their shit, including people whom they either turn into thralls or salt wives. Hey, wait, they breed with the women and enslave the men? Is that what we're talking about? Just like the damn squishers. Even the practice of having a salt wife and a rock wife, a different wife on land and at sea, aka a human wife and a mermaid wife, sounds like a cultural practice that could date back to the time when the Deep One hybrid program was alive and well in the Iron Islands. Now, perhaps the greatest reaver in Ironborn history is the Red Kraken, Dalton Greyjoy, who once, impressively, if you will, took a hundred women captive in a single raid, and who once said, The women of the West prefer men of iron to cowardly lions, it would seem, for they jump into the sea and plead with us to take them. Women jump into the sea and plead with the Kraken to take them. Do you see the picture that's being painted here? I would guess that what happened on the Iron Islands is that long before the Grey King ever arrived and taught everyone how to build boats and weave nets and be somewhat civilized, there were people on the Iron Islands, or the peninsula that became the Iron Islands, that were existing in some sort of fallen state, like the people on the Thousand Islands are now. These would have been first men, perhaps cut off from Westeros when the land connecting the Iron Islands collapsed, if that's a thing. And obviously they would have been farmed extensively by the Deep Ones, with their women offering themselves to the Squishers, to the Krakens, and with babies probably being given to them on the altar of the Seastone Chair. Strange cultural beliefs arose to keep it all going, and the rest is ironborn history and ironborn culture. To wit, the wearing of squid and fish armor, clothing and nicknames, persisting with the tradition of thraldom, the taking of salt wives from the green lands and raids from the sea, and the belief in a drowned god. And by the way, despite the modern depiction of the drowned god as a dead guy being nibbled by fish, we of course at this point can have no doubt who the real drowned gods are. But now consider the most famous of Ironborn cultural practices, the ritualistic drowning performed by Dampair and other drowned priests. If the Deep Ones really were interbreeding with the ancient people here, well then, this drowning ritual looks more like a test to see if you can breathe underwater. That's right, it's a way to see if a hybrid child has the gift of the Deep Ones. And if so, they can simply swim down to the watery halls to meet their Deep One fathers and then return. Or perhaps they just rise, reborn from the sea, and become the masters and lords of the people on the land. They can never die, if you will, what is dead can never die, because they can live on land or on sea, and because they have the super strength and inhuman pain tolerance of the squishers. Those who fail the test die, but if you're a deep one hybrid overseer, you don't want to waste good labor, right? So these failed drowned men would then be resurrected to become thralls. Not quickly drowned and resuscitated, like we see the damp hair doing, but an actual death and magical water resurrection. Such as what happened to Patchface. That's right, you knew Patchface was going to come into this. It's always seemed pretty obvious that whatever happened to Patchface is the real magical drowning and resurrection that the Ironborn drowning ritual must have originally been based on. The what is dead can never die language implies that it's an actual resurrection, and yeah, I mean, if... <laughs> 
On one side of the continent, we have a guy that actually is water resurrected. On the other side of the continent, we have people with a long-standing tradition of pretending to resurrect each other. So yeah, it's kind of a cargo cult thing. The ancient ironborn obviously used to drown and resurrect each other. That's always been obvious. But now I think it makes a lot more sense. So this is how it would have went. The survivors of the drowning test are A-plus Deep One hybrids, capable of living on land or on sea. I suspect that they became the lords of the people, living up in castles such as Castle Pike when on land. And Pike, whose origins are a mystery of course, would have been built by the Deep Ones and their hybrid thralls. And we can assume that the same is true of Moat Kaland, and therefore also Yeen, by the way. Recall also that there are ruins all over the Basilisk Islands, which many believe were built by the ancestors of the fishy people on the Isle of Toads. So it seems like the Deep Ones putting their thralls to work, building stuff, is a thing. The thralls, they'd all be like Patchface, potentially. And that's why the Ironborn have... No history and no memory of this time, and no idea who built Castle Pike or what the origins of the Seastone Chair are. The ability to build great works of engineering is apparently lost if the Deep Ones abandoned their colony of thralls, as seems to have happened in several places. So yes, not to skip by the, the big news, that means that Patchface was resurrected by the Deep Ones. I mean, what, did you think he resurrected himself? Was it Spongebob? No, it wasn't. It was the Deep Ones, who are apparently active again, just as all other magic powers in the world also seem to be stirring. So Cotter Pike's creepy and disturbing note to Jon Snow about dead things in the water? They're probably not dead, they're probably just Deep Ones who have dead white flesh and bad intent. The most important thing to understand about Patchface having been drowned and resurrected by the Deep Ones is that this ritual created a psychic link between the two parties. Patchface is very obviously constantly receiving psychic messages from someone or something under the sea. And if it really was the Deep Ones who resurrected him, then one could assume that they are the origins of these psychic whisperings. And this too would generally follow the lore from Lovecraft about the Deep Ones and psychic communication. The idea that a magical drowning and resurrection creates a psychic link to the Deep Ones makes a great deal of sense for the scenario that we've just proposed. The psychic link would make for a handy dandy way to control these drowned men who seem to lose their wits and eventually their language if enough generations are drowned and Patch-faced, if you will. I'd guess that only a few special chosen instruments of the Deep Ones would be privileged enough to receive visions of the future or other messages that they are supposed to preach to the rest of the people, as the Dampere is doing, and as Patchface is trying to do for everyone would just shut the hell up and listen to what he's trying to say. Bunch of nanny moans, man. So for the majority of the drowned and patch-faced ironborn worker thralls, their psychic link to the Deep Ones probably functions primarily as a leash and a tether, and also a way to activate a drowned man thrall army if the need arises. And now hopefully you're thinking of Morgan Bainfort, the last hooded king of House Bainfort, a reputed necromancer who, as we know, went to battle with his thrall army, as well as Dagon Drum the necromancer, legendary ironborn reaver of House Drum. I don't have time to go back into all the detail. Check out the... Uh, Origins of the Ironborn and all the Grey King videos, all the... But, okay, look, just don't give me a heart. These are fun, right? You're enjoying these, right? Anyway, I implied at the time that all this necromancy and thraldom 
was actually part of the same thing. And now you can start to see how that would work. The thralls are people who were drowned and resurrected, like Patchface, and who are now under some amount of psychic control from their Deep One hybrid overlords like Dagon Drum and Morgan Bainfort, who raised them from the dead. Or perhaps by the Deep Ones under the sea, who in turn command the hybrid overlords like Dagon Drum and Morgan Bainfort. Once again, I'm pleased to say that all of this is apparently being echoed in the current story. Aaron Dampere had a patch-face-like drowning experience six years ago, and now he is drowning other Ironborn, turning them into drowned men, and calling them an army that is ready to go forth into the world with fire and sword and carry out the will of the drowned god. I covered this theory in extensive detail in the video called Aaron Got Patchfaced, which I'll definitely recommend as a companion piece to this one. But yes, six years ago, Aaron drowned at sea and emerged from the water as a completely different person. Gone was his old, goofy, unserious personality, and in its place, this powerful and austere prophet of the drowned god. Now, Aaron doesn't come across at first as being quite as insane as Patchface, which I think is for two reasons. One, Aaron was drowned when he was like 16 or, you know, much older than Patchface, and so he seems to have retained a little more of his senses. And also, too, because Aaron's utterings, unlike Patchface's, are given in a context where the people around him believe in drowned gods who express their will through drowned prophets. However, when you go back and look at the things that Dampere says, they are, one, manifestly insane sounding, especially as kind of non-sequitur responses to the more normal things that people say to him and around him, and two, the things he says are always about the will of the drowned gods beneath the waves and about the ironborn cultural practices which honor them. When we consider the Dampere and Patchface together, we can see the mechanism by which the Deep One's cult operates on land and shapes the culture. These literally drowned priests would have the strongest mind link to the drowned gods. And it seems like almost everything they say, every thought they have, is shaped by the will of the beings under the sea, whom they worship and desire to serve. Nobody really listens to Patchface, and certainly no one starts a religion based on the things that he says. That would be cool. Oh, wait, no, that would be Ironborn culture, exactly, which has been essentially dictated by the drowned priests since the beginning of recorded history in Westeros. So yeah, as I said, Ironborn culture is really little more than a prolonged cult of the Deep Ones, with a brief interruption by the Grey King and his ancient mariners. But the Deep Ones got the Grey King too. Gosh, those mermaids are pretty. And his children were... Pop-eyed, wide-mouthed, blubbery-lipped hybrid spawn. And the Deep Ones win. Perhaps this is why we catch Patchface accidentally uttering some of the deep truths of Ironborn culture. That's right. On the top of the screen, you can see a quote from Asha Greyjoy's chapter where she's passing out unconscious in the woods, and she thinks to herself that below the waves, the Merlings hail their lords by blowing into seashells. And in that same book, A Dance with Dragons, Patchface says that, yes, the mermaids will blow seashells to announce our coming. So not only are the mermaids blowing seashells in both quotes, but specifically to announce the coming of their lords, uh, of whom Patchface is one. So yeah, Ironborn culture accidentally coming out of the mouth of Patchface. Oops. Now we know why.
So where's this all headed as far as the rest of the story and the Winds of Winter? Well, minor spoilers for the Damp Hair Winds of Winter early release chapter called The Forsaken, which you can find our read-through livestream for in the description below. And the chapter mostly consists of Euron force-feeding Shade of the Evening to his brother Aaron, and then implanting horrific nightmares into his mind, possibly aided by the use of a Valyrian glass candle, if Euron is also Eurathon Nightwalker from Karth, as he appears to be. Now, in those nightmare visions, there are two things that may portend a future squisher event. So, one, Euron flagrantly mocks the drowned god, continuing the blasphemy that he started by declaring, I am the storm, when, of course, the Ironborn think of the storm god as the devil. In the first nightmare vision, Aaron sees Euron on the Iron Throne with the bodies of all the gods of Westeros impaled on its spikes. And it says, There, swollen and green, half devoured by crabs, the drowned god festered with the rest, seawater still dripping from his hair. Later in the chapter, Euron looks damp hair dead in the eye and says, I think if I drowned you, you'll stay drowned. All gods are lies, but yours is laughable. A pale white thing in the likeness of a man, his limbs broken and swollen and his hair flipping in the water while fish nibble at his face. What fool would worship that? So yeah, it's a whole lot of blasphemy. Antichrist Euron, there you go. But of course, we know that that isn't really the drowned god. That's Euron's idea of the drowned god. The real drowned god, checks notes, Oh yes, sprouts out of Euron's face in the second nightmare vision. The dreams were even worse the second time. He saw the longships of the Ironborn adrift and burning on a boiling blood-red sea. He saw his brother on the Iron Throne again, but Euron was no longer human. He seemed more squid than man, a monster fathered by a kraken of the deep, his face a mass of writhing tentacles. So this has always just seemed, you know, kind of cool and Lovecraftian and all that. And certainly this vision does suggest Euron as a tool of the drowned god in some sense. But to me, the real question here is whether Euron is aware of and intends to be a tool of the drowned god, whom he's just been blaspheming. So perhaps Euron can summon krakens and command them and maybe deep ones as well. Or maybe it's more like the damp hair says, and Euron's many blasphemies will bring the wrath of the drowned gods down upon him, or up upon him from under... The, you understand how it works. Under the sea, you fall up, actually, so... Yeah. The point is that Euron's hubristic attempts to wield as much magical power as possible, seemingly climaxing with something horrific at Old Town, definitely seems like something that could backfire. So perhaps Aaron, who, in my opinion, has been drowned and does have a psychic link to the Deep Ones, will be the Deep Ones' real instrument and will somehow turn the tables on Euron. So most of the speculation about Euron at Old Town, of course, involves the dragons of the Dragonbinder Horn, and certainly I've made a couple videos about that. But once you catch on to the idea of Aaron having been drowned and patch-faced in his own way, one of the most obvious conclusions is that the Deep Ones are probably waiting to use him in some fashion. The same goes for Patchface, who is up at the wall and close enough to Hardhome and East Watch by the Sea to potentially have his plot interact with the Deep Ones cited there by Cotter Pike. And in fact, the Mermaid Seashells quote we quoted earlier is Patchface offering to lead the ranging to Hardhome. He says, I will lead it. We will march into the sea and out again. Under the waves, we will ride seahorses, and mermaids will blow seashells to announce our coming. Oh, oh, oh. 
So I'm not sure where all Patchface's story is heading, but, you know, keep an eye on him. He may not be in total control of his person at some point, especially if he's near the water. The other big ramification of the Aaron God Patchface theory is pretty much everything we've been talking about today. Ironborn culture is nearly 100% dictated from under the sea. Therefore, we should assume that it was probably the same or similar in many or most of the locations that we've talked about today who've been contacted by the Deep Ones and who have various cultural practices that reflect that contact. And thus, the ancient cult of the Deep Ones is revealed. As promised, thank you very much. Hit like and subscribe. This is what we do here. And please do consider checking out the cereal. It's really quite good. Much better than eating people alive. All right. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.